details to it. Um, we walk through the introduction from the Bible projects uh, beforehand, and that is always very helpful. Um, one of the things that uh, needs to constantly be reminded of is what section of Isaiah you are in. We're going to be in two different sections this morning. The first one's going to be in chapter 11. And that opening section of Isaiah from chapters 1 through 12 um, really lay out the message of the entire book, the judgment that God is going to bring on his people for trusting in things other than him for salvation, and that there will be salvation brought through a foretold one. Now, when you're going through um, Israel's history, the book of Isaiah is one of the earliest of the prophets. Uh, And as one of the earliest of the prophets, these predictions and these prophecies are some of the earliest statements regarding the coming king, the Messiah that would come. And so it carries out a specific role in their history. And so I want you to see it. Um, Isaiah 11, we're going to start and then we will be in Isaiah 30, 32, and 34. Uh, and then next next week, uh, if all goes as intended, uh, we will finish the book of Isaiah, starting in verse four or in chapter 40, and then beyond. So uh, we'll we'll get to that. All right, Isaiah 11. As the people of Israel were continually trusting in other things and rejecting the Lord, Isaiah was commissioned in Isaiah chapter six to go out and share with them a message that would. Uh, harden their hearts. He was not sending a message, and God was not ordaining through him a message that would end with them repenting. No, instead, in Isaiah 6, we are told that the message itself uh, of warning and of salvation would harden the hearts of those who had set their mind against the Lord. Um, as humans, we usually think that we aren't, we aren't susceptible to that kind of thing. If something presents itself and it makes its case well, we see ourselves usually as neutral arbiters of what's true, but Isaiah reminds us always that we are not. We like to uh, verify what we already believe or validate at least what we already think. And so the book of Isaiah starts out as reminding us that it's really not our perspective that's important, and it's really not our, it's not our preference for the way in which God would save or judge the world. Uh, it's It has to do with the humility, as we talked about last week in the book of Micah, the humility that it takes to actually entrust oneself to the Lord's righteous plan. So we finally see in chapter 11, and this is after the predictions of the coming uh, Emmanuel in chapter 7 and 9 um, and that we read all the time during Christmas. And uh, chapter 11 comes and gives much more detail about This one, after the tree of Israel is cut down, there will be the stump of Jesse that's left and a branch from those roots will bear fruit. Uh, And that's where we pick up. That's Isaiah chapter 11, verse one. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness, the belt of his loins. What things stand out to you guys? from this passage with regards to what the role of the coming Messiah will be. This is all about Jesus 800 years before he was born. What things stand out? That he won't judge you by what your eyes see. Right. What will he judge by? Inside? Right. It's the same thing with regards to uh, when David was being anointed. Same references and the same place and the same spirit being mentioned there. Uh, the Lord does not look on outward appearances. He doesn't judge by what he sees or what his uh, ears hear. He judges by the heart, which means this coming one is going to have divine knowledge at, at a level that no regular human can have. We're already set up with this idea, not only from uh, the predictions of Emmanuel, which literally means God with us, but he's also called the father of all creation, eternal father, um, And then we have these types of predictions which lay out for us that this is not based on any natural ability that he's going to have. This is going to be a divine ability. Anything else stand out? Uh, 
Yeah, so with righteousness you shall judge the poor. In other words, what typically happens in in societies that are spiraling out of control is that the poor have no defense. And so what he's saying is for those who truly do trust the Lord, them being poor is not going to hurt their case. It's not going to be something that um, that the Lord respects one way or the other, gives them a pass on or um, or treats them worse because of it. And that's why he follows it up in verse 4 there, that he will decide with equity for the meek of the earth. In other words, those who uh, are truly seeking the Lord in humility, it doesn't matter if they're rich or poor, righteous judgment will take place. And judgment being rightly discerning what is in the heart. Um, not naturally, but because of what God is doing with them. We see this with Jesus' message over and over and over again. He does not come in and just hear the words people are saying. He knows the thoughts of their hearts. Uh, and what is expressing here is that this is done through the Spirit of the Lord. And we see the exact same thing show up in the Gospels. Um, there's no way that Isaiah is able to just guess this. This is coming of God presenting to the world what he is going to do about 750 years after this. Uh, and so we see the references here to the Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. This will be a man that is in the world that the Spirit of the Lord comes and rests upon, giving him wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, and knowledge, and most of all, the fear of the Lord. And so much so that it'll actually interact with his heart on a level that he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and it informs his justice, it informs his judgments, not by what his eyes see or what his ears hear, but with full righteousness, he will decide all things. Um, and look at the last part of verse 4, since we pointed that already. What will be the effect for the entire earth? How will he destroy sin from it? Yeah. How powerful is his word going to be? And again, we have yet another divine quality here. It is not that he just comes out and reprimands. Anyone can say anything. You, know, you can walk up, and if it's snowing today and you don't want it snowing, you can go out and try to command the clouds to stop. Is it going to listen? No. If you want it to snow and it's not snowing, you go out and tell it to snow. Is that going to make it happen? No. We aren't divine. It's actually really common these days in more New Age circles to argue that our words have power. They don't have power. Not like that. Not on the creation level. Uh, we have power to destroy people. Um, we have power to sin with, uh, with our mouths like that. Um, but as far as for a creative ability, as far as for a, a righteous judgment ability, we don't have that. And this is why it is described that he will be utterly unique. Verse 5, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. All of these things show a complete unity between what the Spirit has been doing and will do and this righteous branch. Now, at this point in Israel's history, what we know about the coming Messiah is really quite little. Uh, we know that he'll be a ruler like Moses. We know that he will be a man after God's own heart like David. Um, we know that he will be a suffering, innocent servant. But we don't know much more specificity than that. And Isaiah is unloading some of these teachings about this and connecting it directly with what the Spirit has been doing all along. And this is something I think that a lot of Christians miss, that everything in Jesus' ministry is not just him doing it. It is the entire Trinity working as a unit. He comes and he does his Father's will because he was ordained by the Father to do these things, and he does them through the Spirit's power. Jesus himself did none of these things of his own power or of his own teaching. It doesn't mean he was incapable. It means that each member of the Trinity has their role to play. Could the Father have come as the incarnate one? Sure, theoretically. Could the Spirit have come and indwelled um, and, and, uh, and lived incarnate like the Son did? Yes. That's not their role. The role of the Spirit was to bring life, as we have seen throughout. And the role of the Father was to send the Son and to establish the will before all creation to save those whom he's saving. So we're going to see what happens with Israel because Israel doesn't listen to this exactly as Isaiah had been told. Go to Isaiah chapter 30. Isaiah makes mention 
through the inspiration of the Spirit, regarding the things of the Spirit, which is always quite fun. And he addresses to Israel this reality that they are trusting in things that are not going to save them. They are intending that they can go out and find life and protection of their life from the cultures of this world and by making alliances in this world. And what does God say about this? That's not the way for his people to find salvation. And so he actually goes up to them and refers to them in chapter 30, verse 1, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but it's not mine, who make an alliance, but it's not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction and to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. For though his officials are at Zoan and his envoys reach to Hanes, everyone comes to shame though uh, through a people that cannot profit them, that brings neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace. What is happening here? God had set out a plan for them to wait for his salvation, and instead they went and go and make alliances of their own. No, it's not very smart of them, because they actively have the temple of the Lord to uh, inquire of the Lord. They have a high priest, they have an entire setup there to know what the will of the Lord is, and still what do they do? Well, let me go to something else. Not very far off of us. We have the scriptures, do we not? the very words that proceed from the mouth of God, and how quick are we to say, well, I know it says this, but I think I know about life more than the one who created it. And here's one of the things that God says to them, that the basis of them turning is not for any lack in God. It's not for any lack in what God's promise or ability is. It's simply because of their stubbornness, their lack of humility, which will show us and this is one of the great applications of the prophets, it will show us how it is we may come and hear from the Lord directly. We humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord. And in due time, he will lift us up. This is a teaching in the Old Testament, a teaching throughout the New Testament. One of the realities of salvation is that we are to humble ourselves and to listen to God. Rather than to coming with it with a skeptical or a complacent ear, we are to listen to what he says and be adamant about its truth. Why? Because life comes no other way. Life has never come any other way. And the way that God has devised this to work is not for us to go and find the strongest thing that we can find or the most interesting that we can find or the most um, sure thing that we can find and place our trust in it. No, we are to find the one that made us. He even speaks to those who are complacent in Israel and says the same thing to him. Turn to chapter 32. Morning. Chapter 32 is a message that is uh, given not only about the king who will reign in righteousness, but also to those who would think that they would find safety in their complacency regarding the Lord. He says specifically to the women that are in Israel, uh, warning them against complacency and the disaster that's going to come upon them. Isaiah chapter 32. We'll start up in verse 9. Isaiah warns them, Through the Lord rise up, you women who are at ease, hear my voice. You complacent daughters, give ear to my speech. In little more than a year you will shudder, you complacent women. For the grape harvest fails and the fruit harvest will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Shudder, you complacent ones. Strip and make yourselves bare and tie sackcloth around your waist. Beat your breast for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, and for the soil of my people, growing up in thorns and briars. Yes, for all the joyous houses in the exultant city. For the palace is forsaken, the populous city is deserted, the hill and the watchtower will become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. Until when? Until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field. Watch this switch when the Spirit comes. And the fruitful field is deemed a forest, and then justice will dwell in the wilderness. Righteousness abide in the fruitful field, and the effect of righteousness will be peace. And the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. 
My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. And it will hail when the forest falls down, and the city will be utterly laid low. Happy are you who sow beside all waters, and let the feet of the oxen and the donkey range free. What is happening here? We have two different sides to this story. This reality of those who are complacent about the coming judgment and refuse to repent. God says, look, this is all going to go away. Everything that you depend on, everything, everything that makes complacency possible, which is comfort, food, rains, everything that comes into this world that allows for complacency to still live. God says all that will be stripped away in judgment. You're not going to be able to carry out a life that is pleasing to the Lord if in complacency you sit there and expect that we are owed all of these things. And what God says, to, especially to these women, he says, this is not going to continue forever. It's not going to be, in, just in the physical realm, unending food and everything's fine and sin cannot be dealt with. No, instead what he says is all of these things in less than a year are going to come to an end. And he warns them to repent now, not to protect themselves from that, because the reality is even those who are righteous get swept up uh, physically and in time to the, uh, almost as uh, casualties of war, in the judgment that God works to rid the world of sin. Why is he saying this? He's saying in verse 15 that the Spirit is going to be poured upon all of them from on high. And the effects of that, as we learned over and over and over again, is that the effects when the Spirit of the Lord is given and enters into the narrative is that all of a sudden, broken things become living again. Desolate places become fruitful places. That which was judged become that which is restored. And this is the reality. We usually think of judgment and salvation as two different things that God is doing. That's not true. When we come to the cross of Christ are not both things being enacted at the exact same moment there. Our sins are being judged on the cross, and that's the penalty being paid for them. And through that purification, justice comes forward, and we are actually able to be saved from it. Because our sins aren't just ignored, they're truly dealt with. This is exactly what God is saying to the people in Isaiah. He says, look, salvation is going to come through judgment. God getting rid of sin. That's going to happen on the temporal level. And he's speaking to these women about that. That's also going to happen on the eternal level. This is why there is a final day of judgment that the apostles all preached. Because all sin will be wrapped up into that. And those who do not have any of their sin dealt with at the cross have to endure the judgment of God directly for their sins. Because none is going to possess, as he's been referring to, the new Jerusalem. None is going to live in the new heavens and new earth unless their sins are fully dealt with at the cross. Now, these are the beginnings of the discussions of things like this. That without the Spirit of God doing what he's going to do, as he keeps on predicting, something's coming that's going to bring this about. Without that, all we have to hope for is just judgment, death, desolation, suffering. Now, to bring this into the church age, into our own lives in an application, when we do trust in the Lord Christ, do we still experience suffering? Yeah. Sin still dwells with us, doesn't it? And suffering is a direct result of our sin, or somebody else's sin, or living in a fallen world. And so, a lot of people get frustrated when they come to salvation in Christ and then find out that suffering is still a part of our lives. Because a lot of people are preached on this idea that, that prosperity comes, and, and, and all of these, these temporal blessings come in all of this stuff, or even the prosperity gospel, wealth and health and lack of suffering and all these things should be expected for the Christian. But the scriptures don't give us any such promise. In fact, they say, and Christ himself warned, that those who desire to follow Christ, those who desire to live a godly life, will indeed suffer. It's actually promised to us that it, the heat of that might actually turn up because we're living in a fallen world. And Jesus said the same thing. The world hated me first. If you're going to follow me, do you think it's going to like you? That's a paraphrase. It's going to hate you too. 
And so we read of these eternal promises and we try to bring them into the now. And then we get frustrated when it doesn't work out that way. But we are never promised that we are going to be without suffering in this life. And so one of the things that's very difficult, especially in wealthy countries as Christians, is not to become complacent. What God says is, for those who follow me, to become complacent is to realize that when your culture fails, when, as God brings all empires up and he brings them all back down, when it goes back down, as these ladies are about to experience, and he's speaking to them, he says, look, this is going to happen within a year. You're going to lose any focus if you are not focused on the Lord and his eternal promises. If you're just focused on, well, the rains are really good this year, we're going to have a good crop. He says, I'm going to stop the rains. He said, well, we have this really good peace treaty with Egypt, so Assyria won't attack. And God says, I'm going to make Assyria attack. And then Babylon after them, and they're going to be far worse. And they go, well, we have the temple. That's, that's going to prevent God from ever allowing anything. And he says, I'll destroy my temple. I'm going to bring an end to all of these things. Do not become complacent. And so he warns them of this. And he says, the, the switch between judgment and salvation hinges on the spirit of God himself. This is what he says here in chapter 32. It's one of the great places where uh, he expresses that the judgment becomes uh, fertilizer in the ground using the spirit of the Lord to bring about true life. And for those who are wrapped up in the judgment of Israel, who truly trusted in the Lord, need not even fear the death that was going to be worked in their lives either because the promises of God are eternal promises that go past the grave. I want you to turn to Isaiah 34. Isaiah 34 is one of the culminating judgments on all the nations. This is a, a terrifying passage, but one of those passages that really establishes for us this reality that the Spirit of the Lord is bringing about these things and will ensure that they are carried out in the way that he deems necessary. I do want to read the whole chapter because we usually don't get exposed to Isaiah nearly enough. Uh, Isaiah, if you're not aware, is by far and away, and it's not even close, the most quoted book in the New Testament. Um, and for that reason, it should it holds a background in the gospel more than anything else because it, it reminds us of this reality that salvation is not sitting by itself, but judgment sits close by. And the day of the Lord is coming. A day of great darkness and also a day of great salvation. Chapter 34. Draw near, O nations, to hear. And here he goes way past Israel. And give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world, and all that comes from it. So here's the audience. Everyone. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their host. He has devoted them to destruction and he has given them over for slaughter. Now stop for a second. What has happened? Were they more sinful than other generations? Is there something massive that's going on here? Or is this not true of all ages and all times? Right. And every empire and every king is bad. And this, this, is, this is one of those things that Judah was thinking itself exempt from. You know, we have the temple, we have Jerusalem, we didn't turn to Samaria, we didn't go and make ourselves a, a name up in the north, they have all these bad kings. We have a couple of good kings, and what God was saying is, every nation comes to an end, every single one of them. The Lord, we see this in the book of Acts, the way that the apostles talk about this, the Lord sets the boundaries of kingdoms, and he establishes the length of their reigns and the ends of their days. All of that is determined by the Lord. He raises up empires and he casts them down again. It's never to be said that God just has a specific people that are exempt somehow from this. Even Israel thought they were themselves, they were themselves exempt from this. And God says, no, you're not. I mean, look at Israel even today. How many centuries have they been in exile even now? 
What does he say against all nations? The Lord is enraged against all the nations, verse 2, and furious against all their host. He has devoted them to destructions and has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. Now stop. Now we're talking on the cosmic scale, on the eternal scale. And even if empires continue on for two, three, four, five, six hundred years, and maybe they don't meet their end, but what is the end of all empires in the world at the very end of the age? All of them come to an end. There's only one kingdom that will stand for all time and eternity. And God uses very cosmic language to talk about this. Uh, all the hosts of heaven rotting away, the skies rolling up like a scroll. I mean, this is, this is judgment language and, and um, throughout the world wide. It says, why? For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. The Lord has a sword and is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat and the blood of lambs and goats, the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen shall fall with them and young steers with the mighty bulls. And their land shall drink its fill of blood and their soil shall be gorged with fat. Does this sound like an ex, you know an exciting time or a fun time? No, it sounds like a horrible time. You say, we're talking about the Spirit of the Lord. Why would we be talking about so much death? He's supposed to bring life, right? We'll see. Verse 8, For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. But the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness. Its nobles, there is no one there to call it a kingdom, and all its princes shall be nothing. Thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its fortresses. It shall be the haunt of jackals and an abode for ostriches. And wild animals shall meet with hyenas. The wild goat shall cry to his fellow. Indeed, there the night bird settles and finds for herself a resting place. There the owl nests and lays and hatches and gathers her young in her shadow. Indeed, there the hawks are gathered, each one with her mate. Seek and read from the book of the Lord. Not one of these shall be missing. None shall be without her mate, for the mouth of the Lord has commanded, and his spirit has gathered them. He has cast the lot for them. His hand has portioned it out with the line. They shall possess it forever. From generation to generation, they shall dwell in it. Isn't this fascinating? In the middle of all this destruction on sinful mankind, God ensures that the rest of his creation will continue to live. This is a fascinating thing because we see this reflected not only here, we see this as part of the story of the last time that the Spirit of the Lord was pulled out in the world in Genesis 6. God did not just save eight righteous people. What else did he save? On the ark. All the animals. All of them. It wasn't, it wasn't Noah going out and going, you know, here's some of my favorite animals and so forth. No, he didn't have that ability, and it wasn't up to him. What did it say? God brought the animals forward. God brought them forward. Why? Because he loves his creation, and he's going to continue to have them exist. And so when Edom is being used as an example of what's going to happen to the entire world, he says, I'm going to lay waste your land, but I'm going to ensure that this area becomes a place for the rest of my creation. Mankind can't dwell there anymore. I'm going to devote that to destruction. And the life that comes from it will not be devoted to humans. It will instead be devoted to the rest of creation. In all of these things, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah are all about the coming judgment of the Lord into the world, not only in the temporal sense to people like Edom and to people uh, like the city of Damascus and so forth, or even to the Israelites or to Judah. It extends to the entire world. And then beyond that is left with a, a hanging sense of maybe there's hope somewhere. 
for those who trust the Lord? What would it look like? And that is what the last 27 chapters are all about, starting in chapter 40. And I want you to turn there. The first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah talk all about the judgment of the Lord and the establishment of his justice in the world. His justice in the world does two different things. It rids the world of sin and it saves those whom he is saving. God does not violate his justice in saving some. Instead, God establishes his justice. His salvation is not going to come by him just turning a blind eye to the sins of his people. It's not going to be like that. He's going to deal with the sins of his people. And in the time that Isaiah is being given, that is going to take place temporally in the temple. Come and bring a sacrifice. Even though the blood of bulls and goats cannot actually atone for sin, it was their responsibility to see in their own lives how much death it takes for life to come out of it. And so they were going to have to see their own lambs and their own turtle doves and their own bulls and oxen slain because of their sins. And what is the connection they are to make? Over and over again, sin equals death. Sin equals death. All the time, all the time. It doesn't matter how much you promise to do better next time. Every single time you come to the Day of Atonement and all is washed away, you set your calendar for the next year when you have to come back again for another Day of Atonement. Every sacrifice continually reminds them sin leads to death in the temporal and by extension in the eternal. And so they are to be concerned of themselves, not to just stop their sin, but to look forward to a time when God would, through his servant, save them utterly Now, we know after Christ what that was going to cost him. Sin equals death. And if we're going to express that we are saved to the uttermost, as the scriptures put to us, if we're going to express in any way that God is going to save us, then we have to say it cannot be that the blood of bulls and goats is sufficient. No, we need something higher, something greater than us. And as it turns out, God himself comes and dies for his people in their place. These things are foretold in Isaiah in ways that they did not fully grasp. There is going to be a shoot coming out of the root of Jesse. He's going to come from Israel. The spirit of the Lord is going to rest on him. The spirit of counsel and of understanding, of wisdom and knowledge and the fear of the Lord. What is he going to be concerned about? He's going to be concerned about the will of the Lord. And so in chapter 40, the tone changes entirely. Everything in chapter 40 switches, not to the judgment that will be enacted, but to those who truly trust in the Lord and how well they can rest in him. And so look at the first words in chapter 40, verse 1. This is the transition point of the whole book. What are the words? Comfort. Which, if you've been reading for 39 chapters, is a really weird thing to say in the middle of all that. And so what God is saying is in the center of all this, comfort. There's a place of comfort. There's something that we can trust in. So what does he say? Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended. Iniquity pardoned. She has received from the Lord's hands double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? And watch, watch this temporal life and death and suffering compared to eternal lastingness. Verse 6. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? Here's what you shall cry. All flesh is grass. 
And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. It does not matter that we are people, that we are the grass that withers. The promises of God to save his people utterly from their sins will last past the time that we wither and fade away. This is going to take a pretty magnificent God. You cannot make a promise like that and not deliver on it. That's a promise that we are utterly dependent on him to carry out. And so we need to understand the God who is going to bring this about. And this is why chapters 40 through 48 are all about the greatness of God. What he is able to do compared to all the false gods in the world. It's it's the only place... These nine chapters, it's the only place in Scripture where God just sits down and brags about himself. It's a pretty remarkable thing. I've actually done an entire Bible study just on these nine chapters because God just sits here and says, and he goes up to all these idols, all these false gods, and compares himself to them. And he expresses the fact that they can't even say why the past happened, but they can't even tell you what the future will be. And he says, I'll tell you. And 150 years before King Cyrus is born in Persia, God names him in in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 1, and says, there's coming a king named Cyrus, my servant. I'm going to make him set my people free. Now, Persia doesn't even have control over Israel at this time. In fact, Persia is nothing at this time. Babylon is the big uh, thing threatening Assyria, which is actually the world power. The idea of knowing The king's name in Persia 150 years before he was born is not possible for just a human like Isaiah. This is God coming forward and bragging about his abilities to not only know the future, but to know the future with absolute specificity, absolute accuracy. And so this is where he starts this great diatribe of who he is compared to everything else in his creation. Verse 9 is where it starts. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of gospel, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up and fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd, and he will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters, that is the ocean, in the hollow of his hand? This is the picture he gives. The hollow of the hand is just the palm, measuring all the oceans in his palm. Who has done this or marked off the heavens with a span? A span is the width of one's hand, measuring the heavens and all of them like that. Or enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. What's the picture you're getting? He is powerful. And this is his world. And it is tiny compared to him. But what is the earth to us? Absolutely enormous. Overwhelming. This is the picture that we get. The greatness of this God to rise up and say, you know, God, it's nice that you make these promises, but there's this empire currently dwelling on the earth that seems like a better, a better peace treaty to make than with you. They have chariots and stuff. And God's like, I've held the entire planet in the palm of my hand. And you're going to tell me one of those little pipsqueak empires that's got some got some chariots and some horses is going to be enough for you. You have no idea the power of sin. You have no idea the threats that will endure to you. And whatever peace treaties you can make, all of them are null and void the moment you die. And so God draws out this picture and says, look at the oceans. You can't control them. I've held them. Look at these mountains. You can't You can't go on to the summit of all of these things. I put them on my scale to just weigh them out. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him counsel? You want to tell me your way of salvation is better? He says, I'm not listening to your advice. You can't show me counsel. I gave you minds. 
I created your ability to think. I created reason, logic, everything. Who is going to counsel me? Who is going to tell the Spirit of the Lord what he can and cannot do? And he goes back to the beginning. Whom did he consult, meaning the Spirit of the Lord? Whom did he consult? Who made him understand? In other words, who created the Spirit of the Lord, since you seem to have this idea that there's something worth trusting in more than the Lord? Who taught the Spirit of the Lord the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge? Who showed him the way of understanding? He's like, you're trusting in all these nations. Verse 15, behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as just the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. What is he saying? He says, so minuscule are the nations of this earth that while I'm weighing out the mountains and the hills, it's like the dust on the scales and you just got to flick it away so you get an accurate measurement. He's like, this is just like the dust on the scales. Done. He says, that's what you're hoping in. That's why I say, very rare for God to brag about himself like this, but this is what he does to express the kind of salvation he's going to work. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket or accounted as the dust on the scales, just meaningless. Brush them away. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. You think you're going to fix sin yourself with natural ways? There's not enough cedars in all of Lebanon and not enough cows in all the world. Sin is a magnificent force. Absolutely, overwhelmingly powerful. You cannot save yourself. I don't care how many trees and how many bulls you have. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Three different levels of, oh my word. And so God turns around and says, then to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? Now here he speaks of the spirit of God. Here he speaks of his life-giving power. Here he speaks of who he is. Will you compare God with an idol? Verse 19, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for its silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up the idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? And has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth It is he, meaning God, who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in and who brings the princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted. Scarcely are they sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root into the earth and then he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see. And he looks at the stars. You want to know? Who created all these? He who brings out their host by number and calling each of them by name. Here he's talking about all the stars of the universe by the greatness of his might, and because of his strong power, not a single one is missing. Who establishes the heavens? Who ensures that they are like this? Who made them to be like this? Who has named them? You want to know something crazy? With all of our abilities, with all of our observation, we still don't even know how many there are. Stars. Let alone name them. We don't know them. We can see some of them. In fact, when you look up into the night sky, the vast majority of what you see, if you're not aware, Milky Way galaxy is this huge spiral galaxy. The vast majority of the stars that you're seeing take up a place about this big. The rest of it looks like haze because it's so far away from us. That's just in our galaxy. By current count, there's over 100 billion galaxies. What God is saying here is, not only can you not number them, Not only were you not there to see who created them and how he created them and how he made this universe. He says, I named them. 
I know every single one of them. Stars we've never even seen with a telescope. Not a single one of them is missing. Verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? He's like, are you kidding me? I know every star of the universe. I've named all of them. I created every piece, every nebula, every cloud, every grain of sand, and you think that your way is hidden from the Lord. And he said, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint. He does not grow weary. And his understanding is unsearchable. You have no idea what he knows. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Look at this life-givingness. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall and be exhausted. But the ones who wait for the Lord shall become strong. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and never faint. What is he saying here? You think that you can find salvation outside of him. He is the creator of all things, and he tells you there is nothing else. I didn't make anything else. But to trust in me brings life, salvation from sin, and an unending and an unending lack of weariness where God will truly bring us to his eternal home. All of this centers on the work of the Spirit of the Lord here in the world. And as Isaiah continues to ramp up in his descriptions of what salvation will look like and how judgment always sits right next to it, because if you remember, again, we live in a world, even in the church, where wheat and tares grow up next to each other. Those who belong to the Lord and those who do not. And what God has expressed over and over again is that judgment truly begins, and he even comes to the New Testament and says this, judgment should begin at the house of the Lord and continue out into the world. We should be able to discern in our own selves whether or not we are truly in the faith. Why and how would we know this? Are we looking for complacency and safety only in this life, or are we actually seeing that salvation in the ultimate sense must take place and must be ours? How powerful he is to bring this salvation. Great homework to do. Um, Any questions here at the end of this uh, before we close out? We'll be back with the rest of the book of Isaiah next week. But if there's any questions, it'd be a good time to ask them. Or even observations. Yes, ma'am. I think, um, like, wonder about how I, how much Isaiah would be like, oh my gosh, like, what is going on? It's like, okay. Yeah, he was. Because if you see his commissioning in Isaiah 6, you see his exact reaction. As soon as he sees the greatness of the Holy One of Israel in Isaiah 6, he falls flat on his face. And can't he can't see anything but his own sin. And the sins of everyone he's ever interacted with. That's what the experience of seeing God is like. That's why when people go, you know, well, I want to be able to see God. You wouldn't be able to stand up. You wouldn't be able to address this. You can't figure this out. And what is God's response to that? In all that holiness and all that splendor, what does he tell one of the angels to do? Go to the altar, pull out a coal, and touch it to his lips. This pain, this judgment for those who truly trust in the Lord will become purifying for them rather than destructive. This is one of the things that I say, I actually look forward to the grave, not because I don't like my life to continue, but because the grave is what keeps our sins. When we are resurrected, our sins don't come with us. Our, 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 uh, our mortal bodies do not maintain mortality. We will not die again. We will actually, this mortal, as the scriptures say, puts on immortality. There, there is something through which God's judgment and hatred of sin raises us to a newness of life that we will not perish ever again and are actually able to behold his face without losing our minds. Anytime we see an angel showing up, just an angel, another created being, what is mankind's reaction? but to be terrified. What do the angels say? No, don't be scared this time. 
who knows what the next one's going to bring. Do not be afraid, right? They said it even with Jesus' uh, advent. You know, don't be afraid. He says to the shepherds, I bring you good tidings. This is a good, this is a good message, this one. Um, but I mean, even angels are terrifying enough that uh, we talked about this last week, I think it was, with John in the book of Revelation, right? Where he was, he was presented with an angel that came before him now, this, this is not a new Christian. This is a man who wrote the Gospel of John, three epistles, and he's in the middle of writing the book of Revelation while on the island of Patmos. He's like in his late 80s, early 90s, late 80s, something like this. And he even gives in to trying to worship an angel because even created beings on that level are simply overwhelming to us in our current state. And this is one of the things that, uh, well, what was the angel's response to him? Get up. Worship God alone. I'm a fellow servant just like you. And if, if an angel is that overwhelming to us, how much more would God be? Um, things for us to consider when we look for trust in anything else. All right, let's, let's pray and then we'll, we'll end there. Our Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful that it constantly brings us back to seeing who you are in all your glory. We thank you that you are high and far above us that we recognize you as holy and not us. But for Christ, you have made us holy. And this is one of the greatest gifts that has ever been communicated to mankind. That in Christ, we may truly be justified and be welcomed into the beloved. Not for good works we have done, but because you who called us has done so in righteousness and has done so in mercy. And as your word says, you will be merciful to who you will be merciful and have compassion on whoever you will to have compassion. We thank you this day, Father, for having compassion on us to save us in the midst of our sin. That while we were enemies with you, you delighted to save us. And we are grateful for this in your son's name. Amen.